Hi, and welcome to Stardust MQ in 2022. I'm Cameron Furlong. For the start of this year, I'm doing something a bit different. The first four episodes of this year are going to be all featuring guests from a non-astronomy background. Besides, all things are made of Stardust. My guest this week is Angus Shaw. Angus is a jewellery designer and avid watch collector from AHW Studios in the Strand Arcade. He has a large collection of watches and is very knowledgeable on the history and design of these unique and intricate pieces of machinery and engineering. I had a chat to Angus about where he got his love for watches and also the very interesting and very unique observatory watches that represent the absolute pinnacle of watchmaking. So your your interest in watches, did that sort of um, start when you and your family started to get into designing jewellery based around uh, watch components or was it something that you had had um, you know, throughout your life and that sort of came up and was grown through that experience? Um, for my my interest and you could say passion for watches is not is definitely I would say definitely not uh, a thing I've always had. Uh, what I what I have always had I realize is um, a very keen interest and a keen eye for detail for history and for certain, for, I guess you could say certain um, how things work, um, that in a, in a bracket. I'd like to know how things work, uh, which includes people. I've always enjoyed talking to people. I've enjoyed uh, seeing how different people uh, are and how they react to different things that you say. So you could say I'm interested in psychology as well. And, um, yeah, before before jumping into the family business, I did uh, I studied graphic design, and I mean that was extremely detailed. It was very very much about um, you know color balance measurements, you know having having everything correct, but also having that creative flair, um, which is uh, it's not always easy. Uh, and yeah, I. I hadn't known anything about watches. I, I would have not known a single thing about what a watch was when I was actually studying graphic design. So I've come a long way and it's really my own path. I've not had anyone tell me to study watches. I've not <laughs> had anyone to say, oh, you should you know, get into this. It's it was really my own interest. And um, yeah. It's it's funny how it's funny how things um, you know play out you know if if not for if not for this specific thing happening I would not have uh, you know found this path into this interest that makes up I assume a large portion of your life now so and it seems like watches was kind of up your alley so it may maybe it was just a matter of time you know the real precision uh, craft combined with that creative flair that 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 vintage timepieces tend to have uh it seemed like it seems like a it seemed like a logical thing you know think, you know now that you think back on it right yeah 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 yeah. so in hindsight it's com- it's completely obvious uh like why didn't i get into this before but i'm actually quite glad and i'm grateful how i got into it because i think with any with anything um it's it's the timing and also how you get into it that can change your entire view of it because I think that if I was influenced, say, for example, by by peers or friends or coworkers and things like that, if I was in a different industry, and if I was influenced by them into liking watches, but from a more kind of stylistic, fashionable, uh, egotistical sense, I would see watches in a very different way. 
I would probably end up in the same or similar paths because I have the same views no matter what. But it's because we started to collect, um, like my, my mom and I, we started to collect um, old parts because we wanted to use them for jewelry because they were so beautiful. And partly because we weren't in engineering and we had no idea about watches. Like none of my family had any idea. So when we first saw them, we were like, this is really detailed and beautiful. And how is this not known to most people? And the more I researched, the more I dug into it. And the deeper I dug, I realized that this is really not common knowledge. And I think for me, <laughs> um, part of that is I, I always am obsessed with finding things that are, you could say hidden treasures, like things that kind of on the surface, but just nobody knows about it. And, and I love sharing that with people. So, yeah. And so did you then start collecting watches shortly after, after that, uh, discovery? Yeah, quite. Um, it didn't take too long because, um, once we found enough, uh, old movements to, you know, to go through and to know what we can work with, I realized that this is actually beyond my expectation. And I thought, okay, well, there are obviously certain things that need preservation. So I'm not going to just break any watch um, to make it into jewelry. That was quite important for me from the get-go because, um, you know, I, I realized that with these, with these things, like with anything old, there is a certain amount of respect that you need to have for them. And because they're old and they're mostly broken, I can imagine how easy they are, the easy they are to break. So I really educated myself to, um, to know what I was working with and to arm myself with enough knowledge to be able to um, to dig deeper because my my brain was just very, very thirsty for this stuff. Um, and yeah, it just kind of kept rolling. Yeah. Um, and what was the first, what was the first watch that you, that you, that you added to your collection that you started your collection off with? Um, yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm going to count only my vintage because I see my vintage, my vintage pieces as my true collection. Um, and as a side note, I don't particularly like and love vintage because of the word vintage. I don't particularly like that uh, for the sake of it. I, I am obsessed with vintage only because they are a period in where all of these instruments and timekeeping devices where they were invented. So all the early patents, the first technologies, the frontier, and this is why, this is why I'm into it because they were the first. And uh, I think you'll notice in a collection, if you see my collection, it's it's loaded with with patents, with firsts, with lasts, with interesting ideas behind them. Um, so my first one actually uh, was after reading a watch blog article, and uh, what clicked with me with that article was. It mentioned something about this was the first watch to be made by la da 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 da. And that specific one was actually um, uh, one of the first wristwatches made uh, after post World War II East Germany. So this is when you know, a lot of world history was happening. And after World War II, 
you know, the Soviet influence came into the East and of course the Berlin Wall. When you had East and West, um, I started to realize that, okay, well, actually these are two sides of not, um, uh, two, not two ideologies. They're actually two sides of one country. And I wanted to collect both sides. And my first vintage watch was actually uh, uh, an East German, an East German chronometer, um, which is uh, yeah. I still ha I still have that um, in in service right now. Actually, I'm trying to bring that back to life because it actually broke on me. Oh no, <laughs> that's a shame. So and and you and you've started to um, obviously, if you're collecting, you obviously learned how to refurbish them. And so was that process difficult to sort of learn did you did you have a couple of practice goes that didn't quite go as planned um i definitely wouldn't call myself a watchmaker um and i wouldn't like to call myself a hobbyist either because i'm pretty serious with it um i do let um i, I do surround myself with uh the best people that i can so i really let them do the best job that they can, that they can because it's their job um i often provide them uh my watchmaker um companions, you could say. I, I provide them with parts um, for repairs because I, I have a plethora of parts anyway. Um, for the actual watchmaking itself, I've definitely tried it and I've attempted myself and I realized, you know, I had to do that once or twice to understand how, how strenuous it is. And um, yeah, I'm, I myself, I'm, I see myself as definitely a, uh, a collector, um, you could say I I would like to say that I'm a storyteller because I am more obsessed with these stories and how they've come uh, rather than uh, get like right into the technical detail myself. I understand those details, but I don't think I need to get my hands in the oils just to be able to say that because I let the watchmakers do their work. So. Okay, then. So you mentioned that you that you like the stories surrounding it, and 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 you mentioned you know with the the your, your, one of your first watches was that um, you uh, Soviet influenced uh, yep. East German watch. Um, but what what in which watch that you that you have is has your favorite story attached to it? Oh wow, okay, <clears throat> that's um, that's such a very that's a very mean question. <laughs> um, Oh, so I have, I, so I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at a part of my collection now in front of me and I realize I have them for different reasons and it's almost like I put on different goggles for different things. So I have some pieces that are based on technology. I have some pieces that are based on, this is the first of its kind. I have some pieces that are based on emotion and pure craftsmanship um i would say uh my favorite story i mean that's that's actually really quite quite a tough one i mean there are pieces that actually okay i'll, I'll tell you this this is um this piece of mine is uh an interesting story because it's both emotional and technical um it's not what i have in front of me but i always remember it um, it's a vintage uh, Harwood, H-A-R-W-O-O-D, uh, and that's the surname of John Harwood, and he's an inventor from the Isle of Man. Uh, Isle of Man is a 
is a little island off uh, England, and it's where they have those insane uh, motor motorbike TT races. Um, but it's funny that uh, some of the greatest uh, British watchmaking comes from there. And this guy uh, in 1924 created the patent for the first automatic wristwatch. And by automatic wristwatch, I mean a wristwatch that you didn't have to wind by hand. And this is back in 1924, which was very, very early. The emotional side to me was that I found this watch on eBay and this, this watch had everything original and complete. It was in sterling silver. It had its original leather strap. And I mean, original leather strap from the 1930s, still sewn into it. It had its uh, original silver buckle. And I found the hallmark on the buckle to the year that he bought the watch, which was about 1933. This guy actually bought the watch and he served in World War I. His great-grandson, or actually, no, his great-grandson or his grandson? No, actually, his grandson. His grandson sold it to me on eBay. So I found the watch on eBay and the seller, I asked him just a bit more information about the piece because I usually like to ask for provenance and where things come from. And he said, oh, my, my grandfather served in World War I and he showed me pictures of him in military uniform and him on a camel uh, in front of uh, the pyramids in Egypt. So he did his whole tour. He came back to England and I believe he bought the watch in 1933 passed it down to this grandson of his and this grandson was actually putting it up on eBay. I actually asked him why he was selling the watch because it seems precious, uh, seemingly precious only to me, but not to him. He said, I needed to pay for my daughter's tuition. And I thought, okay, um, I mean, I hope a thousand dollars will, you know, <laughs> suffice, but <laughs> um, thank you though. Cause I appreciated that. And, um, yeah, he sent me also, I said, I said, can you send me uh, any other material or any information that could be related to this watch? And he sent me his grandfather's military jacket buttons. He sent me two buttons oh, wow. along with the watch. And I still wow. have all those things with me. Um, and I've tried to get in touch with the guy again, and I've just lost his contact on eBay because it was so many years ago. And um, yeah, I still have the watch and it's one of my gems. I will never sell it uh, because it's, um, it's my personal uh, journey into getting that watch. But also it's in the watchmaking field, it's an icon. And it's literally the, the unknown gem that started modern watchmaking. Because the idea of wearing a watch on the wrist without having to wind it by hand that was a very modern idea. And people nowadays are still trying to get used to the idea, oh, you just have to shake the watch. This is the, the granddaddy of them all. And Rolex actually took this John Howard's patent and they uh, remade it without telling him. And there was a lawsuit as well and you know, everything happened and um, the rest is history. But they say that John Howard is the grandfather, is the father of the automatic wristwatch. And uh, Rolex owes it to them as well. And I have an example of that. So there you go. 
Well, I, uh, I I don't know what I was expecting when I asked that question, but it wasn't that. That was that was really that was really something. Wow, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> I can see I can see what you mean by it. yeah. The stories it's often the stories that are attached to 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 pieces that are the most valuable part of it. I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, it it does it does um, it does give you this kind of extra strength to either not sell, not want to sell it, or it kind of it it makes me want to pass it down in a way, and not just the the piece itself, but the story as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, because um, I think it really transcends all of this metal, which is just I mean, it's silver, it's stainless steel, it's you know gold. It really it really changes it and sort of morphs them into precious metal. It really makes these kind of dull things. I mean, they're not dull, obviously, but it makes these static things come alive in a way. And you often hear, you know, people that collect vintage and antiques say, if, if these could talk, imagine what they would say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, another good story that I, that I know um, from our previous chats is your yep. Girard Perregaux observatory watch. It's probably my favorite one that you've told me, but I'm probably a bit biased because it has to do well, yes. with astronomy. Uh, um, uh, I, I did tell you that for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> I figured. Um, mm. So yeah, tell us a bit, about, tell us a bit about, about those observatory watches. Yeah, so I, I don't know why, but I have always been naturally obsessed with the idea of precision uh, perhaps because perhaps it's the it's that chase it's that chase for something that's intangible because we'll never reach perfection but it's like this this great human effort to try and capture something even for like the briefest moment to capture something as much as possible fast as possible and as well as possible with all the instruments and, and all the gears and the machinery that we've come up with. Um, and yeah, I've always been obsessed with collecting chronometers. That first, uh, that first uh, vintage piece that I mentioned, the East German one, that's actually also a chronometer. But of course, with uh, older Soviet standards, it didn't uh, come anywhere close to um, observatory standards, nor did they want it or need it to. Um, with observatory chronometers, chronometers um, I mean, the whole idea began in about the late 1800s uh, with pocket watches uh, all the way up to about 19, I think, even 30s and 40s. They were still testing pocket watches at, at uh, observatories. And there's quite a few noted observatories around uh, Europe that are prestigious. Uh, the main one that always comes up is Neuchâtel in Switzerland. Um, there's, uh, of course, Geneva Observatory. There is uh, the Kew Observatory in England and, of course, Greenwich. But Greenwich was not known to test uh, wristwatches or watches at all. Um, the ones I mentioned all, are all the ones that have tested uh, wristwatches and uh, uh, watches. Uh, then you've got uh, Besançon from uh, France. And um, not sure if there are any from Germany, uh, but the main ones are Neuchâtel, uh, Besançon from France, and Q from England. So there, that's like the triangle of um, wristwatch holy grail. Um, basically, 
it was like the Formula One of wristwatch prestige. And the companies of yesteryear would uh, create their best pieces, their, their most precise and their best performing engines and send them all to these observatories to test. And they would hold competitions. And from memory, they started at about at about 1945. I remember it was around the end of World War II. They started these uh, competitions. And I believe it was really for uh, a new age as well, um, for you know this post-war kind of boom. And they, they really wanted to turn it up a notch into how precise they can make a wristwatch. And like, uh, you know, fashion runways down to street fashion, and you've got Formula One all the way down to street cars. The observatories were testing the most insane of watches that then they could advertise on a street level and then sell to people and say, oh, my company, my watch company, for example, Gerard Perigo, we achieved these results at the observatories. And this is a testament to our technologies, our research, and what we want to put and what we have put in every single watch that you will buy. So please buy our watches. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's always a commercial side to it, of course. This is uh, meant for, in a way, um, I would say it's partially uh, marketing and partially pure scientific um, push as well. Um, the piece that I have that I mentioned to you about the Girard Perigo was actually uh, the very, very last year of the chronometer competitions, which was 1967. Um, and they had very, very stringent rules. So they had, uh, for example, a wristwatch movement could not exceed 30 millimeters in size, um, like, you know, regulations of any, you know, competition. Um, so, you know, that really, um, I mean, that, that was, to me, that's just super interesting because all that stuff <laughs> happened. And most people now just know that watches run on batteries, but it took like, so much. It took so much science and development and just all these hard yards for the world to come to this really, really convenient uh, everyday cheap battery running thing. And that's why I appreciate, I appreciate all watches because I think that, you know, no matter how cheap and how uh, bad in a way a watch is, it's, it was, it's the result of all this hard work. And I think for me at the Holy Grail, at the very, very top, at the, the summit of all of this, they're the observatories. So, yeah. And so what kind of, um, what kind of processes would go into developing these kinds of watches? And then what, what, what would the test, the test that they had to undertake to, to become certified on from those competitions? Um, so the, the stringent rules, uh, from the observatories themselves included things like, um, you couldn't make the movement beyond 30 millimeters. You had to have the wheels at a certain size, so on and so forth. Like it's, it's quite, it's quite specific. Uh, if you see it, it's just a chart full of numbers. And for the companies themselves, uh, they would do their internal testing and they would um, 
have them basically as best as they could, like they test them the best they could, put them in a box, send them to, to send them to the observatories, and once they get them, uh, the trip could have been loaded with magnetism. So the first thing that I believe they did was to demagnetize them, because traveling, like if you know, if you fly, there is a little bit of radiation, and there's magnetism everywhere, and so any bit of the elements out there can really affect the, the tiny, tiny springs that are inside. Um, for the competitions themselves, they would, I mean, it would be in a stringent level, they would test them up to 45 days consecutively at various angles. And they would say things like uh, first position, second position, third position. And first position would be maybe face up. Second position will be face on the side or crown down. The third position would be movement up. And all of these are actually meant to emulate uh, movement of the wrist on the hand. And so at the, in the lab, you're still trying to emulate a person wearing it out there on the street and in real life. And they would test them uh, against uh, magnetism. They would test them against, uh, of course, gravity. They would test them against, uh, you know, every 24 hours it would be measured. And I mean, the 45 days is actually quite, quite a while. Um, it's, from what I know, the longest time a movement is meant to be subject to testing at one time. This is 45 consecutive days. So, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the gist of it. And what would it be tested against? Like, what was the standard? Yeah, so it would be uh, it would be temperature, it would be magnetism, it would be gravity, um, and of course, um, I mean, it's 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 essentially all of the elements, all of the elements mm. that are trying to stop it from from the springs beating precisely. And yeah. so and so, it, obviously, they would they would measure them uh, to how much how well they kept time. So, what would be the 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 way that they would measure how successful it was at at sustaining at, uh, at resisting the pressures of those of those elements. So you mean what is the standard that they measure against? Yeah, yeah. What's the standard that they measure against? I, from what I know, they measure them against the stars. Observatory. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. So it would be it would be measured every twenty four hours, and they would. Uh, so you have for each for each uh, movement or each batch of movements, they would have um, they would have a what they call a regulator. A regulator is basically a a a fi it's a finely it's a fine adjustment doctor <laughs> that goes in <laughs> and uh, and literally fine adjusts and regulates each of these movements and just monitors them um, every day and make recordings. Uh, and after the said 45 days, um, he or she would uh, have recordings based on that and then give a cert certification if it's, if it's past a certain percentage of uh, precision. And what was the, the, the Gerard Perigo's uh, precision rating, I guess, from, 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 its, from, its, uh, from its testing? 
Um, so my, my watch specifically has lost its certification. Um, these would have been delivered in the shops um, with, the, with their certificates, which is pretty, pretty epic and pretty nerdy, actually, because I'm not sure what kind of consumer would have wanted to have a bunch of technical papers to know how well an engine has performed at the observatory. Well, but, I, well I guess someone like you. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I, like, I, I like it now in hindsight, but at the time, if there was something out there uh, at the market now, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll like that too because I'm, I'm, I'm like that. <laughs> uh, what was, uh, how successful was that particular watch, the Girard Perigo, at, at its trials? My particular one has lost its papers. Um, from what I can see from the records at Neuchâtel Observatory, uh, it didn't perform as well as the others. Um, and I believe it either came, no, actually they, they gave certificates only to first, second and third place. So I believe mine didn't receive a certification. So it fell behind third place. Um, but Girard Perigo as a whole, as a brand, um, they won many, many years of these certifications. So Girard Perigo and Omega and Longines were known to be the top players of the Swiss industry. Um, so not mine specifically, unfortunately. I wish I had a top performing movement, um, but at least uh, mine was actually part of the legacy of actually the Neuchâtel Observatory, yeah. That's cool. I always like I always like talk to you about uh, these types of things, like the observatory trials. I find yeah, really yeah. really interesting. It's it's just such a it's such an interesting competition that I never knew existed, and there's, there's yeah. a reason why I, this is the second time I've, I've talked to you about it in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in this kind of setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've you've obviously done um, you know a lot of digging on the history of watches and timepieces. Yep. Uh, but have you have you like sort of done some some done some looking into the like the history and like the into like time itself. Is that something that you're interested in? Time, time itself. Um, yeah. <clears throat> um, I think the deepest I've dug into time itself, um, other than thinking about it philosophically, um, was digging into watches and, um, historically, I mean, from the first known clocks, for example, the grandfather clock. Um, the grandfather clock, as you know, has a pendulum. And that swing is like one beat per second. So from all the way back in, you could say, those olden times um, to the 20th century, scientists, uh, watchmakers, horologists, you would say, have developed these instruments to be so precise that... Um, I mean, for me, what's interesting are these numbers and it kind of just puts a context in my head. So what's also interesting about the Girard Perigo is that it's the first, uh, it's the first mechanism, the watch mechanism that carried what they call a high beat uh, movement. And a high beat is um, a mechanism that is running at five hertz or at 36,000 beats per hour. So this is a very, very high frequency compared to the traditional system, which was 18,000 or 2.5 Hertz. At 18,000 beats per hour, you've got a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty fair tick. You've basically got a rhythm of 
tick, 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 tick. And the 36,000 just literally doubled that. So the finer you have these beats, the more precise you can tune and adjust the watch. And Joy Perigo was the first to actually implement that. And from 1966, that first movement came out inside this watch. And from then, it went up to basically the quartz watch. And the quartz watch, instead of using mechanical springs, moved up to a quartz crystal. And the quartz crystal uh, worked on, of course, the piezoelectric effect, which is charged by an electric shock. And its frequency ran at the first uh, quartz watch ever made, was by Seiko. That first ran at 81.92, so 8,192 beats per second. Um, so these advancements have come quite a lot. So with the Gerard Perigo, I'm talking about five hertz. And then you jump to the first quartz watch, which was 8,192 hertz. Then you jump to Omega. And uh, what they've done back in even the 70s was this incredible watch that uh, they pushed the quartz crystal all the way up to 4.1 million hertz. So, so 4.1 megahertz. So that's 4.19 million oscillations a second. And that's with a physical quartz crystal that they cut into the shape of a tuning fork. Um, this would still be considered uh, analog, uh, you could say, because there's still, there are still physical parts moving. But you know, from, from the grandfather clock all the way to this, now I've just been obsessed with like knowing these numbers because they just put a context into things because the highest beating mechanical watch went up to five hertz. And then the jump from five to 8,192, then the exponential push onto 4.19 million with a quartz crystal still, basically uh, now uh, the uh, atomic time, I mean, atomic time is not using anything really that, uh, correct me on this, of course, I don't know if uh, the cesium atom is physical. <laughs> I'm sure it is in some form, but the cesium-133 atom is nine point something billion oscillations a second. And that's how they measure it. So how they measure one second, what one second means in the official standard of the world, one second equals one oscillation of the cesium-133 cesium atom. And that stuff just blows my mind because um, you have these atomic clocks and then you have grandfather clocks and then you have all these mechanical watches in between. Then you have these quartz watches that completely trump those. So this whole journey of timekeeping, it really goes to show that humans are capable of a lot of things, but also it shows that it's infinite. You can just keep going, but you'll never ever reach what is said to be in, uh, like um, uh, what is um, absolute precision. Like what is absolute precision? And I think that, you know, looking back on it now, the vintage era is so romantic because it's not actually ever, it was never 
that precise. It's just the chase for it. And yeah, that's, that's what really, really um, uh, pulled my strings. <laughs> yeah. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.